When I started using the Enneagram back in 2000, I quickly learned it and just understood it. We then were able to start using it about four or five years later in the churches we were in with couples and different people. And they just grew like leaps and bounds. But I always hid behind Jeff like, oh, you're the pastor. They just really want to hear from you. I'll just tell you like the ins and the outs and you can present or you can talk to people. I'll just be by your side, basically. And again, that was just me thinking, I don't really matter and not developing myself and just going along until I had the wake up call back in 2015. And that's when I realized that indolence is so dangerous. It's a slippery slope. It feels comfortable. It masks itself as peace and harmony, but it's absolutely not. It's the opposite, but you can't tell when you're in it. And it's not, oh, I should be selfish. It's not that. It's like, no, who has God called me to be? Who has he asked me to bless in the way that he designed me instead Mm. of just giving myself over to the world and whatever they want? Mm. So yeah, indolence is a very enticing part of the nine, but it offers nothing. There's no nutrition. It's like cotton candy. (laughs) Mm. Oh, that looks like that would taste great. Mm. And then you're like, oh, that has no nourishment. I'm Sawyer Witted. And I'm Scott Tress. Welcome to The Stories That Make Us. This podcast uses the tool of the Enneagram to explore the beauty and complexity of humanity through stories, both real and fictional. Some episodes, we interview live guests about their stories through the lens of their types. Other episodes, we'll dissect fictional characters to discover their types and learn more about ourselves in the process. Because the reality is, it can be hard to see ourselves accurately. The eye can see everything but itself. Thanks for joining us, and let's get to it. A one, a two, a one, two, three, four. Mom! (laughs) (laughs) You're no fun. Uh, Hello, Scott. Hello. I have a question for you. Mm -hmm. As always. Yes, let's do it. What is the best pickup line that you know? (laughs) (laughs) I know you don't need to use them anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm the bachelor over here. Yeah. Okay, you you go first this time. I need a minute. (laughs) Let's hear yours. Okay. I mean, come on. All right, here's my favorite. So you're sitting there, right? Oh, no, my voice cracked. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. Then you go to the next girl. So you're girl. sitting in your coffee shop. Yeah, right. <laughs> then you just move on to the next girl because you already ruined your chances. <laughs> um, you're sitting there at the coffee shop, sitting there with my Bible open. She walks over, sees me, my Bible. Or maybe I stand up and go to her, right? With the Bible, and and she her, thinks you're about to preach. Wait, what? I said you walk up to her with your Bible like you're about to, <laughs> to preach. preach. No, 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 I leave my Bible on my table. <laughs> oh, you see that and, over there? <laughs> sir? That's mine. <laughs> I'm not done my story. And I walk over to her and I say, hey, um, I was just reading the book of Numbers and realized I don't have yours. <laughs> And then she gives me her number. <laughs> Does she? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it works every time. That's my favorite. Oh, that's, yeah, no, that's solid. Yeah, thanks. Mm. <laughs> See, I only remember the cliche like, ones from when we were kids. Did yeah. Hurt. Did it hurt when you fell from heaven? Did it hurt <sighs> when you got hit with the ugly stick? <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Oh, man. I just, 
I can't think of it. You know, it's been a really long time since you've had to use a pickup line. Is this line. a sign that I need to work on my game? No, you've been <laughs> married for like I'm how saying, long? I need to keep things interesting. True. She's, I mean, I'm not, I'm That's not true. using enough line. Gotta spice things up. Exactly, exactly. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, since we're talking about your wife, that's a great segue into today's episode. Not because we interviewed your wife, but because your wife's a nine and we're Woo! talking about nines today. Mm. And Scott, you're pretty familiar with nines, yes, aren't you? Yes, I am. Love them. Yeah. So type nines, their core fear is being in conflict, tension or discord internally or with others, mm-hmm. feeling shut out, overlooked, and ultimately losing connection with others. As children, they often felt overlooked, overpowered, and unheard by others as if their voice didn't really matter. Oftentimes they had parents or siblings who had strong personalities, so they felt unseen in comparison to them. Other nines had parents who were straight up neglectful of them, which obviously and understandably caused the nine child to believe that nothing they do will change anything. Yep. So why assert yourself, right? This led the child nine to believe an unconscious message that it is not okay to assert yourself or to think too much of yourself. As they're running from this core fear, they're running towards their core desire, which is to have inner and outer stability and peace. They want to be at peace and they want to feel connected, but believing they can never really be sure that they will be, they focus their attention on indolence instead. And this word, indolence, describes the energy that nines have that they devote to apathy or not feeling the consequences of their inaction. Mm. And what that really means is not apathetic towards people. Nines are often very loving. They're often very kind, gentle, loving people. It's an apathy of numbing themselves so that they don't have to feel the tension or the problems that arise from their inaction, from them not taking action towards the things that they need to move towards or that they need to do. How would you say that in your words? Yeah, I feel like it's more of a fear of action as a response to not wanting to pick the wrong choice because that results in unsettledness yeah like by making a choice Mm -hmm. that forces you down the path if you're at the fork in the road you don't have the answer yet but the conflict isn't there yet and if you know one route is correct one route is going to lead to conflict Mm. it almost feels safer to not pick to not Mm. choose a path because at least you haven't hit the conflict then if you happen to pick wrong sure that's well said so as they're running towards that core desire they're tripping over their core weakness constantly. For the nines, this is sloth. And again, this is not necessarily that they just lay around all day or take naps. No, although I don't know a single <laughs> nine who doesn't love a good nap, right? But this sloth is actually an indolent apathy that helps the nine avoid anything conflictual. Mm-hmm. So it's this, I'm not going to make a decision and I'm just going to not let it bother me that I'm not making a decision. That's kind of where the apathy and the indolence comes in. Mm-hmm. It's like a no, everything's fine. I don't need to make a decision. You guys just decide. It'll be fine. I'll just go along to get along, right? Yep. While often very productive, energetic people, nines exhibit their sloth in how they don't deal with the most important issues, especially internal issues. Additionally, rather than move into their own right action, they merge with others' desires, others' dreams, others' goals, others' wants, others' action, Mm -hmm. because it's easier and creates a false sense of peace for them. Yep. The sad thing in all of this is that they don't show up for themselves. And after a while, if they continually don't show up for themselves, they can actually lose themselves. Like they don't know who they are. Hmm. And they struggle to know who they are apart from their significant others or those they take care of or the jobs they fill or, you know, whatever it is they're merging with. Mm -hmm. What saves them from all of this, from this exhausting journey, is the fourth core motivation, which is the core longing, which I often call the secret sauce. And that is that your presence matters. 
the nine needs to know that their presence matters in the world. So remember, with all this head knowledge, what really brings it all together is getting that experiential knowledge, which is why we decided to interview a type nine today. Yes. Today, we have on the podcast a very special guest, Beth McCord, Enneagram expert, coach, author, and speaker. Beth is the founder and chief content officer at Your Enneagram Coach which is an online platform where you can learn about and explore how to use the Enneagram as a tool for personal and relational transformation, as well as you can get trained and certified in Enneagram coaching. Hmm. With more than 20 years of experience and a passion for coming alongside individuals, couples, and groups, Beth is leading the way in simplifying the deep truths of the Enneagram from a biblical perspective. Her mission is to make personal awareness and growth accessible for everyone, anywhere, so they can experience health and transformation in every area of their lives. Beth is also my mentor and teacher in the Enneagram. Her Become an Enneagram Coach program is actually the certification program that I went through. She is wonderful, and I am so pumped to share this interview with you. Beth is also a type nine on the Enneagram. Enjoy the interview. Hey, Beth, welcome to the show. Hey, hey. thanks for having me. Yeah, it's really great to have you here. It's super exciting for me to have anyone on the show, but it's very exciting to have you as the person who first trained and certified me in the Enneagram. Yeah. It's yeah, it's really exciting. Thanks for having me. I can't wait to dive into the world of nine. Maybe you can help me understand myself. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So type nine, the peacemaker. As we talk about an Enneagram type, and as Scott and I constantly remind our listeners, where that comes from and where that starts is actually in your childhood. And so that's when your type first begins to emerge. We believe that you're born your type. It's mostly nature over nurture, but there are a lot of things about nurture and the way that you grow up and the way that you're raised that kind of solidify your type and bring it out. Right. When we're talking about childhood, one of the first motivations that we're going to talk about is the core fear. And so that is the first of the four core motivations. And for type nine, the core fear is being in conflict, being in tension or discord internally or with others. It's feeling shut out, feeling overlooked, losing connection with other people. As children, we have this wounding childhood message, right? That is associated with our core fear. And this message was not necessarily said to us explicitly, although there are plenty of people in the world who have sadly had it said to them explicitly. But regardless if it was explicit or not, we felt this message and we experienced this message. And so it felt true to us. And this is just the natural human mind and part of development, right? Oftentimes, young type nines felt overlooked they felt overpowered or unheard. They either had parents or siblings who had strong personalities so that you know they felt like they had to disappear or they just felt unseen, overshadowed. And other nines had parents who were just neglectful of them, causing the child to believe that nothing that they did is worth anything or will change anything. So why act? And so this leads them to believe an unconscious message. And that is that it's not okay to assert yourself or to think too much of yourself. And so for you, Beth, I'm curious, as you hear that message, do you resonate with it? What was it like for you as a child? Yeah, everything you said is spot on. Growing up for me, so I'm the baby of the family, just two of us, my brother and myself. He's about four years older than I am. And when I was born, my brother was about three and a half years older. So he was about three and a half. And my brother, when he was about two years old, he started talking like a lot of kids do. 
but they noticed that he had a severe stuttering problem. So that put them on the trajectory of trying to figure out how to help him because it was so severe that it would take him about a minute to even just say one word. Mm -hmm. And so it was a very significant situation for them and very stressful for him. I'm sure he's trying to communicate. He can't. And then his parents are feeling like, oh, you want to help your child? Mm. So there was a lot of stuff happening in that dynamic. And so when I came on the scene, he's now three and a half. And so they're still struggling with that. He's a pretty hyperactive kid. And so there's just a lot going on there. When I entered, I had a milk allergy and no one knew about it, even though my dad <laughs> is an allergist. And I was like literally his guinea pig and helped many people because of my issue. But back then it really wasn't a like a known thing. I was colicky for pretty much an entire year because they didn't mm. know. And mm -hmm. so here I'm this crying, fussy, not happy little baby on top of already having this three and a half year old boy that is struggling to speak and is stressed, which then adds more stress to the parents. And you can see they just want me to probably like, hey, let's get her to feel better because we've got all this other stuff already going on. And so by nature, there was already that tension. And then as I finally, they figured out what was going on and I calmed down, I think what I learned, of course, not knowing until I was older, was I quickly picked up how my pleasantness, my peacefulness helped the dynamics. Like it calmed a lot of the dynamics down. The frustrations, the anxieties, the worries, the sadness, all the frustrations. And so as I got older, that was the role I played was just to be very pleasant, be very peaceable. But my brother's frustration, I'm sure as any of us would feel if we had a severe stuttering problem, I was the target of that frustration. So he would tease me a lot mm, sure. and belittle me and tease me we worked it all out. He's amazing. He's a yeah. counseling professor mm. at a seminary and he, so yeah. we're all like good now. But back then yeah. I really did pick up the sense that my presence didn't matter or I wasn't good enough or I shouldn't assert myself. Like, why does it matter? And so it all makes sense when you kind of look back and go, oh, I really do feel for him. He couldn't literally talk without it being a big issue. And mm. you can imagine for type twos, they walk into situations feeling, and he's a type two, feeling mm. rejected. Yep. And you can imagine every time he opened his mouth, he was going to stutter and everyone would look at him like, what's going on? And so there's mm. this feeling of rejection from the get-go. Now he's a mm. super likable person like you. And so really he had a ton of friends as a type mm. two and that wasn't really the problem, but you can still imagine adults and other people that don't know him and didn't know his personality, mm -hmm. how it's, oh, what is this? So mm. unfortunately I just got the back end of it, of sure. his frustration, his sadness, mm -hmm. his irritability. And so that really shut me down as a little kid, as a little girl and just, and then my parents would be frustrated with the whole dynamic of him teasing me and me being frustrated. So then I would just try to walk away or be alone. A lot of times I'd play in the basement by myself. It just felt so much safer to be alone. And I was happy by myself. But that also makes me sad when I think about me as a little girl. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. That I had to choose isolation to feel. And that's not safe as in like physical safetyness, but to not feel that I might be belittled or teased in some mm -hmm. way. And so, yeah, I feel like those childhood messages were 
definitely tried and true. I just wanted to make everyone happy. And whatever that meant, I would accommodate to. And if it didn't work, it was, I felt, I just felt horrible. I've got to fix it. I got to do something. I got to mind read. And so that is very much my story, but I can guarantee you that's not what my parents, the story they were trying to write. My parents really wanted to love me and take care of me and all those things, but we all see the world through our own lens. And that was the way I was seeing it and interpreting it and then reacting to life in that particular way. No, that makes a lot of sense. Thanks for sharing that. And I agree with you. I think it's harder sometimes for us to naturally feel compassion for ourselves, like our child selves. But when you think about, especially as a nine, who's so aware of other people's presence all the time, right? If there was another little girl that you was around you and you saw her doing that, like, I'm sure that would just immediately draw you to that little girl. Like, it's like easy. In fact, when I was in second grade, there was a young man, his name was Marty, and he was new into our class and he had cerebral palsy. And this was back in the early 80s. And unfortunately, Mm. a lot of the kids weren't super kind to him. Mm. And I felt great compassion and befriended him and hung out with him and had a great time with him. But yeah, as a nine, I want everyone to have a safe place. I want everyone Mm -hmm. to feel they're important. Mm -hmm. And so when I look back and I see that little girl who reached out to this boy that didn't really have any other friends, She didn't want him to feel marginalized and on the side. She didn't want him to feel overlooked because that was one of her greatest fears. And so I admire her, but I, like you said, I'm also sad for her that Mm. she was experiencing that same loneliness, which of course allowed the compassion and empathy to be there as well. Sure. Yeah. No, that, that makes total sense. It's interesting when I have conversations with people, helping them figure out their type and I talk about the childhood. And this has happened multiple times with some of my siblings. You know, I'm one of eight, so I've got a lot of siblings. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Whether it's with my siblings or like my parents or just friends in the area, this concept comes up of nature versus nurture, which I mentioned a little bit earlier. And I think it's just noteworthy to think about like your situation, right? Growing up and having an older brother, being the youngest and having the relationship that you had with him and your relationship with your parents and all that stuff. Like it makes me wonder if you were a different type, yet all the outward circumstances and factors were the same, all the relationships were the same, but you were an eight, for instance, like how differently you would have responded, right? Totally different. (laughs) And I know that because I obviously have an eight wing and (laughs) I, in our, uh, at your Enneagram coach, we have a concept called Enneagram internal profile and that are more than just our main type. And our wings and those Enneagram paths, the lines we're connected to, they are parts of us. And I've named my parts. So my type eight, I call her Regina because she's either remarkable Regina or raging Regina. (laughs) (laughs) Depends on how healthy I am. And (laughs) let me tell you, with my brother, when she would come, she let him have it. Now, that was once in a blue moon, like most nines, but... Yeah, she let him have it. Now, the funny part about that is, (laughs) did I really? I'm three year, three and a half, four years younger. The best thing I could do was pinch. What is that going to really do? But she was there and she was wanting to protect. And but I know that that was that's just a small part of who I am versus the Mm -hmm. nine being the predominant 
right. ruling factor. Mm-hmm. So even though Regita, my type eight part would show up occasionally, sure. <laughs> it only lasted for so long because ultimately I wanted peace. I wanted connection. And mm-hmm. so that ultimately ruled the day. But I mm-hmm. totally agree. If eight was my main type, oh man, we would be going at it <laughs> stop. And it, I just wouldn't put up with it. And yeah. so there's part of me that is envious of other types mm. that have strengths that I might not have. But mm. yet, if if we any of us allow ourselves to go there too long, that's actually not beneficial for us because we totally. all have incredible strengths. And so right. I can now with understanding the Enneagram and these connecting parts that I have, I can go, I can bring Regina in and mm-hmm. use my type eight personality in certain situations, but I definitely want to do it in a healthy way. Now, of course, back then I was too little to understand any of that. Sure. But I want to integrate that strength, that confidence, that protectiveness that the eights bring. But I do love what my, like I call her little Bethy, the little girl in me back then. Yeah. I love what she also brought. She brought so much mm. strength and compassion and empathy. She understood that her brother was suffering in life yeah. with this severe stuttering yeah. and had compassion for him, but also would have preferred him to back off. Sure. And so both things can exist. <laughs> yeah. That, that ambivalentness within you. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think about that all the time. And I love that concept of if you lined up nine kids, like you said, you have eight in your family and that let's say they're all different types, then they're all going to see the same experience in the family from a different viewpoint and react mm-hmm. differently and think differently and feel differently and which is amazing and beautiful, but also frustrating because it's like, does anyone not see it this way? You know, no, see it my way. Uh, But yeah, I totally 100% agree that had I been like a type eight or maybe like a six and just wouldn't have put up with it and like been anti-authoritarian of my brother, like (laughs) just gone after it. Yeah. But no, I think that's a great point. Yeah. We would have definitely responded differently. And I think that's really Mm -hmm. important for parents to recognize mm. how are your kids responding to different dynamics and what is it that they're needing from their mm. vantage point. Now, of course, sometimes you don't know that your types, your kids type because they're too young, but I think sure. you can gain a lot of insight and wisdom, even at that young age of what they're really seeking and wanting. You can ask some really curious questions. And I think that's something that I longed for was that attunement. That was um, the word I was thinking. Yep. That attunement from my parents Back in the day, it was be quiet as a kid, go about your day. They cared, but it wasn't quite like it is today. Sure. And that's why I think the going and playing downstairs by myself, that isolation felt safer because tattletaling or just really trying to have justice in protection. Of course, it was always called tattletaling, but I was looking for a tomb and I was looking for someone to tend and to care for me. But by telling on my brother that only brought worse things, he was more upset. They weren't happy. And so it was like, I think I'm just going to disappear. That's going to be the safer route here. But that didn't have to happen. That didn't need to be that way. And so I think if my parents understood, let's say the Enneagram, which is a whole funny thing with my parents, like my dad, (laughs) this is a side note. (laughs) So here I've written books on the Enneagram Uh and my dad, he's a type seven. He is, I just really have a hard time remembering all these things and like the names and the types. Can we just, can you like just categorize them as animals? (laughs) (laughs) 
was like, no, dad, can't do that. Sorry. Nope. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, so That's hilarious. I, I always find that really funny. But yeah. if they had known that I was a girl who really just wanted peace and connection and harmony, they would have understood the devastation of being teased and marginalized and overlooked really meant to me as a child. Now, we're all res- kids are resilient. You just pick yourself up the next day and you try to carry on. But over right. time, it affects you greatly. Oh, yeah. And it seals in your mind these soundtracks, these false messages, head trash that, mm. as we were just saying, is, yeah, don't assert yourself. Mm. That's what I was always hearing. Like, don't assert yourself or don't make much of yourself. No one really wants to hear from you because if they did, your brother would want to hear from you. That's the closest mm. person in your life. And he just wants you to be quiet. And so those messages get ingrained and then they become a part of the fabric of your life. And that's how you go about living until you hopefully finally wake up and go, wait a second, that is not helpful. And that's not even true. Right. And so that's the journey I've been on, obviously, for the last, I started learning about the Enneagram in 2001. Okay. And as a nine, we don't know ourselves very well. So it's taken a while and I'm still on the journey. As a nine, it's like we have this internal fog And it just takes a lot of time and energy to understand and sort it all out. But if we can stay on that path one step at a time, lots of really cool things can happen for the type nines. Yeah, that's so cool. And I tell people too with the Enneagram, like the Enneagram is not the answer to all your problems. It's not like you're going to learn about your type, read seven books on it, and then you fully understand your type and you move on. This is work that you- That would be pretty cool. Me too. That's just not life, no matter what- topic yeah, is. Yes. Life's hard, but mm. at the same time, it's beautiful because it's hard. Mm. There's a movie called Collateral Beauty. And I love that phrase because in the hard aspects of life really is where the seeds can germinate and be mm. nurtured and flourished and then grow. Mm. Often we learn the most from the hard places of life or the mistakes that we make versus always succeeding or life being super easy. Now, mm-hmm. I'm a nine. I would much rather peace and ease <laughs> and comfort. Like that is what sure. crave. Pretty mm. much getting closer to age 50. I recognize how much I've learned when life isn't super easy. I would have never started mm. your Enneagram coach had there not been a really hard season and a yeah. wake up call to take a big step forward mm. for all those nines out there yeah I hear you you're saying no give me the comfort the cozy <laughs> but if we maximize the use of those trials and errors man so much can come out of that yeah so i look at quick side note here and i might keep this on the pot i may not but my mom is a nine and her late father was a nine as well oh, my grandfather okay. yeah and looking at them and their two different stories is really heartbreaking and really cool because I'm really proud of my mom. Mm-hmm. My grandfather went to his grave being a conflict-averse man yeah. to the point where he started to get very sick, mentally sick in his old age. Yeah. And I think that volcanic eruption came out yeah. and it came out in a lot of anger towards my mom. And so I think his conflict-averseness and stuffing it and just falling asleep all of his life came out in really nasty ways at the end of his life. Mm. And then I look at my mom who has spent, oh, she'll tell you, she spent the majority of her life, she's in her 60s now, she spent the majority of her life shoving things down and not paying attention. But something happened about a decade ago or two and she woke up 
And there was this piece of, oh my gosh, no, people can't just walk over me or use me or I have a voice and I need to use this voice. And I'm so proud of her to see where she's come and like how she's grown in that. And of all of my, of all of my family members, she's had the most questions for me about the Enneagram and we've probably dialogued the most about it. And which is actually really true. I don't know if I've ever shared that with you, but like our whole platform, nines are the most engaged across the entire thing in Instagram, taking courses, becoming coaches, hands down, nines are the most. Now, what we don't know, is that a population thing? Are there more nines than we realized? Mm -hmm. Or is it my platform because I'm a nine? Now we've heard from other Enneagram teachers that they find a very similar pattern. Mm-hmm. So I think it's more than it than just me being a nine. I'm sure that plays some sure. factor into it. But that to be said, it doesn't surprise me that your mom, once she had this tool in her hands, that she's really sure. utilized it and maximized it, which sure. is great. Yeah, it's awesome. This is actually a really good segue into the next section here. Before we move on from this first core motivation, the core fear, I want to talk a little bit about the defense mechanism for type nines. And so you said earlier, kids are resilient, right? Like horrible things happen and we're excellent observers, horrible interpreters, right? Yep. We interpret these wounding messages. It's, I think it was Adam actually, he said on the type six episode, shout out to Adam. He <laughs> said that when you're a child, if problems happen, you automatically feel a sense of responsibility. Like it's your fault yeah. because that's a way of defending yourself against a scarier reality, which is that it's your parents' fault when you're a kid and you're being raised by your parents, like that's way scarier to think that it could be something wrong with your parents than to just say, okay, it's something wrong with me. And so we just naturally do that. And so as these fears arise, these core fears of each of the types, there's a defense mechanism that comes along and says, okay, I'm going to protect against this fear. So I don't have to feel this fear because I need to survive. For the type nines, what that is, is narcotization slash dissociation. And so we'll break this down, like what this means. But basically, it's that the nine will divert their attention to other menial tasks that are routine, that are familiar, that require very little effort or attention. And this is a way of actually numbing their feelings if something feels too large, difficult, or involves conflict or could lead to disconnection with others. It helps the nine ignore the right action that they need to take, and it allows them to remain comfortable. And so it sounds something like this. There's a message that goes something subconsciously like this. As I continue to numb my own thoughts, opinions, desires, dreams, self, I no longer have to feel like I'm a problem or like I'm in conflict with others. I don't have to be in conflict with others. And then it frees me up to focus all of my attention on getting what I desire. We'll move on to the desire in a bit. But yeah, I would love if you could explain to us what dissociation, narcotization, what those things look like for the type nine more practically. If I'm looking back at my childhood, it looks like playing by myself because Mm. that was my way of shutting down and and staying out of the the fray Mm. of conflict or being teased or upsetting my parents or and really feeling like it was my fault. One, they should have been parenting better and they should have been disciplining my brother more for how he was treating me. And then I loved cartoons. Oh my gosh, I loved cartoons. I wanted to be a cartoonist, but I couldn't draw a cartoon to save my life. Oh no. (laughs) I don't know why. I can draw natural, like like, realistic things pretty well, but I could, nope. (laughs) That's not what you're going to be. Yeah. I think I numbed out a lot with cartoons and TV watching. This was back when Atari was around. Oh, yeah. We had the first 
Apple IIe, and I would play games on that, maybe ride my bike a little bit, though. My brother got to ride pretty much wherever he wanted, and I could go three houses up and three houses down. <laughs> that so was the rule. Because I was a girl. Just Sure. But this was back in the 80s when you could go wherever you wanted and do whatever yeah. you wanted, but yeah, for yeah. some reason, not me. But So yeah, I those were some of the ways that I found it was easy to shut down. But I can also imagine or picture myself when we would go places together as a family. So if we went to an indoor soccer game or driving to the store, so I'm there with my brother, it was basically try to not do anything that would evoke him to tease me or do anything. So it's just like, how can I zone out and check out and just basically almost be invisible or Mm. like a ghost so that he doesn't get an idea of what he could do next Mm. because he's not going to do it where my parents are seeing it and so it's going to be subtle it's going to be annoying chinese water torture oh yeah and what he's looking Mm. for is a reaction right that's what you're feeding off of and so if i could just shut down and numb out or fall asleep to life then i'm not going to evoke or poke the bear so to speak and so i would really easily check out i can even remember Mm. being in church and yeah i mastered numbing out and checking out in church (laughs) it's so funny the things that i would do just to get by but yeah Yeah. so a stein that's that is a big tool that we have and it's sad because the dines they have so much to offer and they just don't know it um yeah they've never trusted that part of them they've never taken a big step forward until they wake up like you said with your mom Mm. and then once they wake up it takes so much energy and effort to basically peel back the scales that have kept them bound up into forgetting themselves takes so much energy that by the time you get a few off you're like oh okay that's enough and you go back to falling asleep and then you've got to start all over again and you've made some progress but it just takes a really long time for nines, it's mm. scary. The biggest thing that those are out there that are listening that are not nines and you have loved ones that are nines, the biggest thing you can do is affirmation. Mm. And we're not saying like cheesy affirmation, but you know what? I see that you're making effort mm. to really know yourself or to grow in this one area or you're taking strides over here, whatever it is to mm-hmm. be very specific and encourage them and tell them how much you're proud of them because mm. their fear is that you're going to push back because the other message is don't assert yourself. That's what we hear in our mind all the time. So any kind of feedback, pushback, it's, okay, I'll stop, done. I'm not going to move any further because this is too hard for me to hear negativity or feedback. And feedback, guys, there's a lot of types that love feedback. Feedback just feels like we're doing something wrong and we're upsetting someone. Now, obviously we can, people can give us feedback, but when when it's done in a affirming way, then that's when it gets really exciting for the nine because it's, oh, you see me, you value Mm. me, I'm okay, we're okay, and you're helping me on the path of life. Now, that gets really cool. But if Mm. the nine is unsure of where we stand, are you frustrated or irritated with me? Am I not good enough? Then they're going to basically shut down. And that's where the disassociation and numbing comes in. That makes so much sense. I think it's also helpful to maybe comment on the piece of not knowing themselves, right? Like you become masters of this dissociation of this, like 
dissociating from yourself, from your body, from your hopes, from your own dreams, and merging with other people. I think it's helpful to maybe name that too. And people also, when they're trying to find their type, nines, I think, can sometimes have a really hard time finding their types. Probably, I don't know, maybe I'd venture to say they they can have the hardest of all nine types generally, but maybe sixes too. (laughs) But nines, regardless, nines have a really hard time finding their types initially because of this fogginess, this like this not knowing themselves because they're so used to just disappearing, overlooking themselves, which then permits other people to overlook them. Absolutely. Yeah. I for sure am very skilled at not focusing on what I want. (laughs) Yeah. Like Basically, and like when I get on podcasts, sometimes they'll be at the end like, hey, we have two questions that we love to ask people. And I'm like, oh, no, (laughs) because they're like, what's your favorite this? Or if you could go anywhere in the world, what would you where would you want to go? And the nine's like, are you kidding me? I don't know. Yeah. Where would you like me to go? Just tell me. (laughs) (laughs) Where are we going? (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, that that's sad and Mm. it's beautiful. It's sad Mm. because I'm sure. I do have preferences and desires, but I so quickly attune to others. But mm. also, it's beautiful because I am very flexible and accommodating and yeah. love to just yeah. enjoy the ride of what other people like. So it's a both mm-hmm. and. It's not that it's all bad or wrong. But if I don't take the time to strengthen those muscles of knowing myself, then it becomes codependent. It becomes Mm. unhealthy. So what I need to do is develop those muscles of, okay, someone's asking me where I want to go to dinner. I'm going to, I'm just going to make a decision. Whereas the nine Mm. typically wants to say, I don't know, where do you want to go? Or I don't (laughs) care, which is usually, it feels true, but, but I also start, I have to try to practice like, okay, Let's see, I could do tonight, I could do pizza or hamburgers. I think I could feel great with either of those. Of course, then if someone's, I don't know, I was thinking Chinese. Oh, sure, that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. But I think taking those steps in saying what we want can to other people can be like, really, that's uncomfortable for you? Yes, Mm. because Mm. if you say, no, you want Chinese or Mexican or something different, it feels like conflict. Right. And. I know that's not how everyone else experiences it, but that's how it is for us. So when we do assert ourselves or give our opinion or give our insights, it's not that everyone has to just jump to it. Oh, the nine spoke. We have to do it. But it's like, mm-hmm. hey, thank you so much for telling me what you want. But I want Chinese food. Is that okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then right. the nine's going to be like, yeah, sure. That's cool. Or okay. you guys can work it out. But it's the acknowledgement of our asserting ourselves mm-hmm. that really means a lot to us. Yes. It's hard. It's very hard. Yeah. Yeah, that makes so much sense. That's so funny. This specific conversation is a conversation that happens all the time with the nines that I live with. So I live with my two younger siblings and my parents. My mom's a nine and my younger sister's a nine. Okay. So frequently, I I grew up with a bunch of like food allergies, GI issues, that kind of stuff. So I think one of the good things that come out of that is it's made me very flexible on what I eat. So I've always said, if I can eat it, yeah, sure, I'll eat it. (laughs) I'm not a picky eater at all. So my mom will frequently ask whenever it's Friday night or we're going to do takeout or whatever. She's like, hey, where do you want to go for dinner, guys? What do you guys want to do? And oftentimes my little sister will say, I don't care. And then it usually falls on me or my little brother to make a decision. And the other day I said to my mom, I was like, mom, I said, I really don't care where we eat. Like we, my whole family, we love Indian cuisine and we love Thai cuisine. Like those are two Uh of the cuisines that we love. And there's two restaurants very near here that are really authentic that do amazing jobs. And I've always just been like, I don't care. Like, let's just, 
let's go get Indian or let's go get Thai. Like it doesn't matter to me. And it's interesting as I've, I was just having this conversation, I guess it was three days ago with my mom because she'd asked that question. And I said, mom, I said, do you always ask us why we like, is it easier for you if we just make a decision? I said, or do you actually have a preference? Is there a place that you actually want to go? And then she was like, yeah, I don't really want Indian cuisine tonight because like we had it already this month that I prefer something different. I'm like, great, let's not do Indian then. But it's just funny having that conversation, like her natural bend. She doesn't think about it, right? It's just whatever you guys want is fine. I'm good with whatever. And I think that's genuine. Like it, yeah, she really is good with whatever. <laughs> but I think it also speaks to the aspect of sometimes it's really hard for nines to say, this is what I want. Yes, very hard. Because that risks conflict. And it just takes so much energy sometimes to figure it out. Mm -hmm. But when people give us choices, that's awesome. Like that, if you were to like, hey, do we want Thai or, or Indian? And then mm -hmm. you're giving her space to think about it and go, you know what? I've already had Indian this month. Let's do Thai. Or maybe she'll <laughs> come up with a different answer altogether. Right. But totally. choices are really helpful because it feels safer because someone mm -hmm. is saying, I am okay with these two options or these three options. And mm -hmm. so then in the ninth, cool, I'm not going to upset anyone <laughs> if one of them, <laughs> or at least you're hoping they're not. But sure. I think that's a great way of doing it. But yeah, the nine mm. often feels they shouldn't assert their voice, their presence, their opinions, mm. their desires. And it's not so much that because people are saying that, it's that if it doesn't, if people are not happy at any level, mm. that is very disturbing to us. Mm. Even if someone's just ho-hum for us. And so we're just looking at every opportunity to make people happy. Mm. And that's the ultimate, really the ultimate goal all the right. time. Because if everyone else right. is happy, then there can be peace. Right. So <laughs> it's just a real tug of war inside and externally to figure this all out, which mm. kind of goes into the gut triad for the nines. We struggle internally and externally mm. with peace and harmony and serenity. Yeah. So I've often said, guys, us nines, we're a tricky bunch. Like we come across very easygoing and easy to please. But when it comes to real growth, we're really tricky because we don't have those muscles. They've atrophied. Mm. So it takes a lot of time and effort, and not everyone's patient to help mm. the nine to really develop those muscles mm. because most people know what they want or they can have their right. opinion. And so they get annoyed. Come on, let's go. And mm. if you just think about a person who has atrophied muscles and you're wanting them to gain better care of their skeletal system, their muscular system, it's gonna take a long time. Mm -hmm. And how can you be of assistance to that and mm -hmm. an encouragement and not a detriment? So that's how yeah. I would, but we all the nine types have atrophied muscles in different categories. So it's not like sure. the nines are the only ones. It's true. Uh, and then we have our strengths. Like nines, we are the bodybuilders when it comes to understanding all nine types and being yes. empathetic and compassionate and non-judgmental. Mm -hmm. So we have our strengths for sure. Yeah. But this is definitely an area that we, like you were saying earlier, that we were more ingrained growing up. And depending on the family we grew up in, the more severe that message plays a role in our life. So if we had, right. my parents a lot of times were really encouraging me to try this and try that, like getting me like to play soccer and to do dance and all the different things because they wanted me to assert myself. My dad was a seven. It's, yeah, let's try a bunch <laughs> of things. So in some regard, I had a parent that was trying to get me out of my shell and try new things. And at the same time, I was very fearful. It's a 
it just really depends. But then there are some kids that grow up in families where they're shutting down that type nine to the point where all they feel, <clears throat> the only place they feel safe is doing nothing. Mm. And then they grow up and it makes it really challenging for them to even know where to start. Yeah. So I feel like I was very fortunate that even though we had our dynamics, my parents really did so much to encourage and support, to call me out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why when I did wake up in my kind of late 30s, early 40s, I was able to take good steps or big steps mm -hmm. in directions of growth and to start this business of your yeah. Enneagram coach. And I think my parents were a huge asset in that way. That's beautiful. So our story doesn't end with running from our fears. As we're running from our fears, there's always something we're running towards. And you and I have touched on this so much already, just in, naturally in our conversation. But to say it explicitly, the core desire, the second core motivation for type nine is having inner and outer stability, peace, connection. You desire to be at peace and to be connected, but <laughs> believing that you can never really be sure that you will have these things, you focus your attention on this word indolence instead. And so that's like a big word, but basically what that means is it's a word that describes the energy that nines have that they devote to not feeling the consequences of their inaction, to numbing out, to feeling more apathetic. And again, it's not that they're apathetic towards everything and everyone, not that way at all, as we've talked so much, like nines are so caring other people, but mm. it's a very specific type of apathy towards themselves. Yeah. And so for you, how do you find in your own story, is there anything, any stories you can think of or transitions or periods of your life where you were just living in this indolence mode? Pretty much my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see, which part do we want to pick? Um, Fair enough. No, actually, so I got married when I was 20 and mm -hmm. Jeff really knew what he wanted to be a pastor. Mm. And so we were on a trajectory for that. At the time, I got my degree in sign language interpreting and oh. he was finishing up. So I was done a year before he was, and he still had a year left as a place kicker at the University of Kansas. And mm. so he, he had a full scholarship there. So it was really wow. important, obviously, to yeah. do all that. So yeah. he was doing that and I was interpreting for several different kids at different ages. And when he was done, we went into collegiate ministry. We went to Illinois. But at the time, the ministry that we were part of, because it was like an internship, they wanted me to be trained as well at the same time. So they asked that I not work and that I just will yeah. do that kind of work, which sure. meant I needed to give up my own career of being a sign language interpreter. Mm. And honestly, I did it without really batting an eye. Mm. It's yes, whatever you want or whatever Jeff wants. I'm a one-to-one -one nine, so that also helps to make sure. Sure. <laughs> oh, that's why you sure. just followed yeah. Jeff around the world. Yeah. And and real quick, know, he, the one-to-one -one is also just another word for the sexual subtype, which we've yeah, talked yeah. about before. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Carry on. <laughs> and, and then Jeff is a one-to-one -one or a sexual type six. So okay. mm -hmm. we're very focused on <laughs> each other. We're best friends. We love yeah. doing things in the same lifespan. So doing ministry together with collegiate students was fun and exciting. Mm. And we were doing life together as best friends. And and so on one side, that's really great. But I also let go of part of myself mm. to have that fulfillment. Mm. And then we had kids. I did want to be a stay-at-home mom. I wanted to focus on the kids. But again, I let go of a lot of other things to take care of them and then to be a pastor's wife when that eventually came. And then I did start to do administrative work at the church. 
and I was good at it, but it wasn't like my passion, but I was good at it. And I was glad mm -hmm. to fill a gap and all that kind of stuff. But mm -hmm. never did I take the time to really believe that I had something to offer. Like I thought the best I could offer was being a mom that really did her very best to pour into her kids in a healthy way, a very thoughtful way, and to be a wife that truly loved and supported his calling. And I wouldn't say I would have said that means I shouldn't focus on myself or I'm not important. I probably would never have said those words, but that's mm -hmm. what was the overflow of my hyper focus on others. And when I started using the Enneagram back in 2000, I quickly learned it and just understood it. We then were able to start using it about four or five years later in the churches we were in with couples and different people. And they just grew like leaps and bounds. But I always hid behind Jeff. Oh, you're the pastor. They just really want to hear from you. I'll just tell you like the ins and the outs and you can present or you can talk to people. I'll just be by your side, basically. Mm -hmm. And again, that was just me thinking, I don't really matter and not developing myself and just going along until I had the wake up call back in 2015. And that's when I realized that indolence is so dangerous. It's, mm -hmm. it's a slippery slope. It feels comfortable. It masks itself as peace and harmony. Selflessness. It's selflessness, but it's mm -hmm. absolutely not. It's the opposite, but you can't tell when you're in it. Sure. You know? But once you step out of it, you're like, oh my gosh, I've literally just given myself over and have not, and it's not, oh, I should be selfish. It's not that. It's no, who has God called me to be? Who has he asked me to bless in the way that he designed me instead mm. of just giving myself over to the world and whatever they want? Mm. So it was, yeah, indolence is a very enticing part of the nine, but it offers nothing. There's no nutrition. It's like cotton candy. <laughs> mm. Oh, that looks like that would taste great. Mm. And then you're like, oh, that has no nourishment. Yeah, yeah. that's the stories. But yeah, all through my life, that is a running theme. And I have to be very mindful all the time of when that's popping up. Am I like even when I started your Enneagram coach, he was starting a nonprofit ministry. And I was like, hey, why don't I just put this under your ministry? I'm actively trying to sure. negate myself. Um, yeah. And so we actually call the company name is Beth McCord and Company. And that was right. Jeff's doing because he wanted me to see the significance of it. Like he was 100% behind me developing something that God called me to course. And then he works four-year Enneagram coach. So <laughs> yeah. it's not like he was like, you're on your own. Um, sure. <laughs> but he wanted me to, rem to remember how I am just as important yeah. as everyone else in the yes. calling that God has given us. And that's a Amen. daily thing I have to remember. You know, and other types, that's not a hard thing for them to remember, but then they have their other things. And so I have to, as an Enneagram coach, go, okay, what is it that I have to remind myself of? Because mm. it's easy to slip into focusing on others and thinking sure. in some ways that's a, and that is a beautiful thing, but it can go to a very unhealthy place very quickly that honestly, not a lot of people can see until it gets really detrimental where you mm -hmm. get catatonic and shut down like you were talking about with your grandfather. Sure. Then it yeah, gets, that's right. Then people are like, whoa. But that's, I think, scary for the nine is that a lot of our average to unhealthy tendencies don't always land on others bad as strongly as some of the other weaknesses, but it is just as bad. It is just mm. as detrimental, but it doesn't have the same 
strength or sting or mm. consequences some of the other types sure. um, what they do has and i think that is honestly sad because then we can live in that almost longer without people sure. calling us out on it sure yeah if you just disappear part of disappearing means no one sees you and if you make everyone happy, you're accommodating all the time, right. not upset. They're like, right. this is awesome. This person yeah. makes me happy all the time. But then we lose ourselves in the process. Yeah. So yeah, thanks for yeah bringing up indolence. I'm like, sure. yeah, it's all over yeah. the place. Yeah. It's interesting. I think as I've experienced relationships with leadership that have been toxic and unhealthy, mm -hmm. it's interesting having a language of the Enneagram and looking around and just observing because... I think toxic people really love nines. Yep. I think toxic people are really drawn to nines because they think they can control them. And they can when the nine is not awake and aware and doing their own work. Right. And I was there. I remember I had a friend whose husband was very physically sick over decades with different ailments, mm. but also mentally. And he had written me an email that was just not mentally healthy. Mm -hmm. And it was very hard for me to conceptualize and absorb, but why did he send it to me? Why didn't he send it to Jeff? Because I was mm. a doormat at that stage sure. of my life sure. and letting people do that. And that was my wake up call to go. I think I like what your mom said is, no, I don't want people to right. treat me that way. I don't right. want them thinking they can just say whatever they want. Mm -hmm. And so I started setting up much more healthy boundaries, which felt selfish to the nine sure. until I realized, no, that's actually healthy. There are mm -hmm. ways to help others. There's a way to care for others that doesn't invite others to be unhealthy. Yeah. But those are hard lessons, I think, for the nine to learn. Sure. Mm -hmm. Understandably. I think nines are one of the most patient and long-suffering types. Mm -hmm. I think we're talking about, <laughs> we're talking much more about kind of the dark side of the type nine, which is good. It's part of the self-awareness and yeah. there's so right. much compassion and grace for all of that. Right. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the flip sides of that too, is like their ability to be so patient and long suffering when they're running from that fear, being in conflict, discord, disconnection with others, that kind of stuff. When they're running towards a core desire of, of being at peace inwardly and outwardly, they're constantly tripping over this weakness, which is in some ways, I think it's the other side of this patience and long suffering. It's kind of like the other side of the coin. And the word we use for that is sloth. Whereas we might think that indolence is something that you actively focus on and pursue. The sloth is more like a fuel that's fueling the car, so to speak. <laughs> and so it helps the nine avoid anything conflictual. While often very productive, energetic people, I know many nines who can be very energetic and who can appear very productive. The nines exhibit their sloth and how they don't deal with what's important, especially mm -hmm. those internal priorities. Additionally, rather than move into their own right action, they merge with others' desires, dreams, goals, and wants, like you were saying with, with the different examples you were giving of your life, because it's a lot easier and it creates a false sense of peace, which is really just more so of a comfort, a kind of a momentary present comfort. And as a result, they don't end up showing up for themselves. Yeah. And so you mentioned a little bit, you brought in the gut center, right? You guys are in the instinctual gut center with eights and ones. And every single type has a repressed center. So we have all three of these centers, but there's one that's always repressed. What that means is not that we don't have it, but it's a muscle that needs to be developed, right? It's something we need to work a little harder to engage that center. And so for the type nine, your doing muscle or your gut 
center, which is the one you find yourself in, <laughs> is the one that you have conflict with. It is the one that is underdeveloped and repressed. And so you take in all your information through your gut. You take it in through your intuition, through the spaces around you, through the people around you. Like nines are so intuitive. And yet, because your feeling muscle and your thinking muscle equally overcompensate and you think about what you feel and you feel about what you think, there's no extra space for the doing muscle. And that one kind of just gets shut down. And so because of this, actually, type nines are often described as the types that have the least energy of all nine types because of this internal world that is busy. My mom said to me, I asked her one time, I said, hey, what is the one thing, you know, this is when I was writing my Enneagram songs, yeah. my Ennea songs. And I said to my mom, I said, what is the one thing that you want people to know about nines? And she thought about it and she said, still waters run deep. That's nice. Love that. Right? And yeah, while it looks like it's all this peacefulness on the outside, because mm -hmm. that's how we often experience you nines, you know, yep. what can be going on inside is often, there's often a lot of turmoil. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. Do you relate to that? Do you find that oh, you struggle to connect with your yeah, gut? People say, oh, your voice is so pleasant. It's so calm. You're just so peaceful all the time. I'm thinking, what? You got to just understand what's going on inside yeah. here. Right. Yeah. There's so much noise of trying to figure out and navigate other people's happiness and their agendas and what they want that in the anxiety of, am I making people happy? Am I quote unquote doing the right thing by them from their agendas and standards? And it's overwhelming. You can't make everyone happy. Now we falsely think we can. Sure. And so we try, sure. <laughs> but you just can't, but man, we will try. And so <laughs> we shut down. And that sloth, the overwhelm is like, I, I can't. And mm -hmm. so then we shut down and we numb. For me, it's like this, the nine struggle with inertia. So something that's in motion mm -hmm. stays in, in motion. What's not mm -hmm. in motion, it's going to stay at rest. Right. And for me, really not knowing myself and really knowing myself and like really taking action to know myself. There's, a, there's one thing to know that I'm a nine. So like probably from 2001 to... 2015, I mean, I was definitely learning about myself and I was growing in my awareness, but was I actively doing something as a nine, like my own desires? No, I was totally still asleep as a more aware nine. And then we were in a really hard season. Jeff had to leave an unhealthy job. So financially, we were just really in a pinch and I was working part time. And I was thinking, I think I'd like to be an Enneagram coach. And this was back when really that wasn't a thing. And a person in my life who knew I was really passionate about the Enneagram, and they were just starting to become aware of the importance of it. And they had a platform to actually do something for me, give me like a leg up. And nines, we're waiting for someone to see that in us because we're like, if they see it, they'll value it and they will show the world what we have to offer. We're like waiting for someone to call us out. Mm. And the opposite happened. I was scrolling through Instagram and this person who I was with every day for a couple hours uh, could have asked me any question about the Enneagram because at that point, I really didn't know quite a bit. Mm. And they never really did, maybe occasionally. And they put on the Instagram a picture of an Enneagram book. Oh my gosh, my friends told me about this book. I can't wait to dive into it. And I was livid inside. Like yeah. I was in the living room and I, because the nines, one of our core fears is being overlooked. Right. And I'm like, 
just instantly felt that. So that we're in the gut center. So those instant right. gut reaction. Mm. Stood up, walked right out of the house, past Jeff in the kitchen. He's like, you can feel the energy just like a tsunami wave coming. <laughs> He's yeah. like, what's happening? And I said, just look at Instagram. And so mm. I grab my purse and I get out because as a nine, it's like we're a two liter soda with, yes, I'm mm. from the Midwest, so I can say soda or pop. <laughs> Love um, it. <laughs> and it, like the lid really tight on it. And life and circumstances are shaking that two liter pop. So it's got all that pressure mm -hmm. inside. But we're like, please don't open the lid. I don't want it to spew. Mm -hmm. I don't want conflict. I don't want turbulence and tension and all the things. So I'm trying to keep that lid on. But when that happened, I knew, oh my gosh, this thing is going to spew. I mm -hmm. better get out of this house. <laughs> <laughs> so I got out of the house. Yeah. I got in my car and I started driving. And I knew, and this was 2015. So I was very well aware of that the volcano was erupting mm -hmm. as the nine. And so I was just like, you know what? I just need to allow myself to scream, to vent, to cry, whatever it is. Yeah. And so I did. I just screamed and was mm -hmm. as I was driving in the outside of Nashville, Tennessee, and drove through some of these pretty hills and stuff as I was really trying to think, man, when you're hysterical, it's historical. So what's going on? Mm. What is this? saying about me. So I was trying to really process and I knew, you know, like, yeah, I got overlooked. As I was driving back about 10 or 15 minutes later, I just really felt God saying, why are you so angry? I'm just really kind. And I'm thinking, and I really was like this, are you serious? Did you not just see what happened? Like I was really sassy. Love it. And I knew he he was patient and kind. Oh, he can handle your sass. Yeah, That's right. Like, he knew where my heart was, even if I yeah. didn't like recognize it myself. Yeah. And he was quiet. And then again, I heard him saying, no, really, why are you so angry? And it was clear as day. I'm angry because I overlook myself. And what I mm. permit, I promote. And that mm. was my real wake up call. That mm. was me going, am I going to continue this way of life and just letting people overlook me not speaking up, not having a voice, not having passions and desires. And I'm not saying being selfish, but am I going to be a willing participant in this mm -hmm. world with the gifts and the talents that God has given me to glorify him and bless mm -hmm. others? Or am I going to sit on the sidelines? Am I going to be just wallpaper on a wall? What am I going to actually do? Mm -hmm. And I had to make the decision, or at least I felt I needed to make the decision right then Am I going to just stay as a comfortable nine and live this life of hiding? Or am I going to actually do the hard work, find out what it is that God is calling me to do and actually move forward in it? Mm -hmm. And so I knew I wanted to be an Enneagram coach. So I, when I came back, I knew exactly what I was going to do. I was going to become an Enneagram coach and I was going to figure it out. I was going to bless people. I was going to enjoy it. That was my the first day of basically three solid years of working probably 10, 12 hour days of building your Enneagram coach and loving it. Of course, it was really hard, but loving sure. it and getting it to the place where it needed to be so then I didn't have to work quite that many hours. But what the nines need to know is that anger, we're so afraid of anger, but it's there. But anger isn't always something that brings conflict. Hmm. Anger is passion. It's desire. Yeah. It yeah. gets us going. And so that's the first time I think I realized how anger or passion can be used as a fuel to get me going as a nine and to not have the sloth and to mm. pay attention to what God was calling me to do. Sloth is just waiting there 
for me. You know, like, sure. oh, this feels hard. Let's just be cozy, comfortable. But because of that wake up moment, I often reflect back to that. Now, remember, Beth, if you get too cozy, comfortable, you'll get into inertia again. You won't, it'll be hard to move. Do you really want to be there? I'm like, no. So mm. I'll stir up a little bit more passion or anger. And, no, let's sure. keep going. But it takes a lot of fuel to do that. Yeah. And mm. it's exhausting. So there's this fine balance between <laughs> taking a break and having a good rest, but not slipping back into sloth. That is yeah. a very tricky place. Yeah. I think that's so helpful for people who are listening to who, if they're nines or if they know nines, because I feel like nines and fives are some of the hardest people to learn from because fives often just withhold and then so do nines in, in their own way. And they do it differently, of course, and for different motivations. But yeah, I just think everything you just said was so valuable. So thank you for saying that. Yeah. And it's helping me too. Like it's reminding me as not a nine myself. Oh, yes, that's right. This is just helpful to remember. This is what's happening internally yeah. for you guys. So as we've talked about, right, this way of living, this way of running from the fear of conflict, constantly avoiding it, constantly running towards this desire of having peace, but settling for comfort and never quite feeling like we have what we're desiring and what we want, which is a good, holy, beautiful thing to, to want and to desire, right? And then constantly tripping over the weakness of sloth. We see that this cycle, it doesn't end unless something saves us from it, unless something right. breaks us out of that. And that is what I love about the Enneagram is that it doesn't just leave us with this language to describe the cycle we're stuck in. It also gives us a path forward and a way to get out of this cycle. And that's where, as you've taught me and have taught so many others and written about, that's where the fourth core motivation comes in. And that's the core longing. And for the type nine, that is that your presence matters. It's interesting when I've talked to some people who said they were type nines who were getting into the Enneagram, who didn't know much about it, who, who hadn't done as much of the work, if you will. When I say the core longing, I've seen this common response of kind of like, okay, because I'm, I'm like, this is what your heart needs to hear, what your spirit needs to hear, what your body needs to hear. And they're like, your presence matters, is it? <laughs> and I think, I think that's actually a common experience for all nine types is to not necessarily resonate too much with the core longing. Sometimes it, it just nails it on the head and you're like, oh yes, but initially it can be hard to relate to it because we spend so much of our life avoiding it because it, it's mm -hmm. almost too good to be true in some yep. sense. Totally. And so I think we just ignore it. So even, you know, having done so much of the work, like how does this message make you feel when you hear it? Is there conflictual feelings? What's it like for you? No, no conflictual feelings. <laughs> it's a hundred percent true. And in our most recent book, More Than Your Number, in the introduction, there is a picture and I have it even here on my phone. I've seen and that one. You should it's, be. <laughs> yeah, it's the sheep being held tightly against the chest of the shepherd. And it's a real photo. I know that there's many drawings or pictures like that, but it's a real photo. And when I came across it, my heart leapt because the sheep's face is so at rest. And it's at rest in the knowing that it matters so much because mm. the sheep isn't going to just jump on the shepherd's lap. The shepherd brought the sheep near and then brought its head to his chest. Mm. And then when you look at the picture, and so if you really want to look at the picture, you're just going to have to go look at the book. But his hand is right on the neck, right below the head, right above the shoulders, right there. And it's a very vulnerable place. The sheep really, he 
or she or he can't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. But the shepherd is holding it close and the ear, one of the ears can hear all the noises of all the animals and things like mm-hmm. that. But the other is pressed against the chest mm-hmm. to hear the heartbeat of the savior of the shepherd, which of course right. for me is the savior. Sure. And we have choices. Am I going to listen to the heartbeat of the one that's holding me close and dear and gentle and accepting? Or am I going to listen to whether people are happy or like Mm -hmm. me or are okay with what I'm doing and being just distracted? And that's the battle. But this picture represents who I am all the time. 24-7, 365, because of what Christ did on my behalf. He brought me near. He saved me. He I am taken care of. And so I have to remind myself to listen to his heartbeat, to don't get distracted by all those noises out there. And what it says is, I matter. That he picked me up. He took care of me. He rescued me. He's provided for me. I can't, sheep can't provide themselves with food and clean water. Hmm. Left to themselves, it's a disaster. (laughs) Yeah. And he has provided me all that I need because I matter to him. And when I fixate on that, then everything else falls to the wayside. Now, that doesn't mean it's if I matter to my husband or not, it doesn't matter. That's not it at all. Obviously, that matters. But if I don't get grounded in what's true Mm -hmm. and my security and my worth in my relationship with God, then I will seek what only he can fulfill in Jeff, in my kids, in my career, you name it. And they can never come through. And so I will get mad and irritated and demanding and whatever else. It doesn't work right. So I have to keep my head and my ears and my heart and my mind fixated on the heartbeat of the shepherd. It will always bring me at rest and peace, even when there's so much turbulence going on around me. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I have this image on my phone, my, on my lock screen, and that's why I put it in the book, was for people to see who they really are. Now, here's what's really fun. When I coach people, I will show them this image, and I won't say anything of like how I felt. But when I ask each of the nine types, what does this picture evoke in you? Say five things that it evokes in you inevitably it always matches their type it Mm. always matches their core longing sixes Mm. will usually say i feel secure yeah i feel safe twos will say i feel loved i feel wanted it's just yep (laughs) yeah i'm like oh my gosh this is the best because it totally brings out each type and what they're longing for and how christ is the one that satisfies yeah has done it and continues to do it Mm. and so for me that message 100% resonates all the time. And I, again, have to make sure, am I trying to get that message from him first, or am I trying to get that message from people or the world, career, et cetera, first? Now, Mm. obviously, it's great if your husband shows that your presence matters or your kids and all that stuff. That's important. That's good. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing I'm on the wrong track. But yes, that is the message. Is your message, does it hit you? In the same way that you were wanted and loved. Oh, that that picture. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You probably can't tell. I got teary eyed when you said it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I did that. Yeah, this idea of like I of all of the sheep, like he doesn't care for me more than the other sheep. 
like he he cares for all of his sheep equally, but yeah. he cares for me enough to say, hey, those sheep are going to be okay right now. I'm going to hold you. Yes. <laughs> that feels so. And again, I just realized I just revealed my tunis because I'm literally thinking about the other sheep's needs. <laughs> That's my perspective is like this. If no one's taking care of them, like you can't focus on me because then no one's going to take care of them in their pain. And on, that's not just this, that's not completely this altruism. There is some of that. I don't want to be seen as self-centered or all the attention's yeah, on me. Exactly. There's some of that right. sneaky pride in there. But oh yeah, like when I think about that, Jesus has chosen me and holds me yeah. and delights to do so. And it's not because I've given him anything. I'm like, what? Because what can a sheep give a shepherd? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> And what's amazing is I love that you use the word chosen because one of the greatest fears of the two is rejection. And so the opposite of <laughs> rejection is chosen. Right. And that's why I love this picture because it really brings to our attention what we truly long for, but what mm -hmm. has already been taken care of. Oh, so good. So we have all this knowledge now, and especially if you're a nine, I don't want to just leave you with the core longing and say, okay, go and believe it now. I want to offer some suggestions of ways that we can help make that more of an ingrained message rather than something that kind of goes in one ear and out the other. I think, and I've heard other Enneagram teachers talk about this, one of the best and most effective ways to engage your core longing is actually to do it through your repressed center, through your repressed instinctual center. And so for nines, what that looks like would be engaging their gut. The only way you're going to really be able to see that your presence matters is if you actually start showing up and if you take a step of faith and move forward. So what that practically looks like is when you notice an opinion, share it. It doesn't matter what the opinion is. Like, I mean, you know, if you're with your safe people, speak your opinion, you know, say like, hey, I have a thought about this. Odds are the people who love you, they're going to want to hear it, right? It also looks like maybe getting involved in something physically. Some nines, that means go join a sports team or start doing yoga or do something physically with your body just to start engaging your body more, becoming more familiar with each of the muscles in your body, just becoming familiar with your physicality. It also looks like moving towards others and accepting when others compliment and affirm you rather than just shirking it off and saying, okay, they think this of me, then I want to move into that. Yeah. Are there any practices for you that have been helpful specifically in engaging your gut or your doing center? Those are all really great things. Yeah. I think moving, I know for me, if I walk most days that energizes mm. me in ways like my natural inclination is get up, get my coffee. And I just want to sit in my chair and read if I actually do all that, but read at my walking desk, I'm not talking like I don't have to, this doesn't have to be like crazy fast or anything, but just a good walk. The rest of the day really feels so much more full and complete. Mm. I feel much more clear minded and like able to, the fog has dissipated some mm. and I can actually be more proactive and yeah. more confident. So I think that's a really good one. And honestly, I have to visualize like getting my, behind myself and just gently nudging and saying, no, you can do it. Let's go. Like this, this is important. What you have to do is important. And so just being like my own coach and cheerleader and reminding myself that what I have to offer is valuable. And so much of the nines like, oh, that sounds so selfish and so se self-centered. And I'm like, no, mm -hmm. that, that's just not how I'm wired. Yes. And so I can press into that sphere knowing that I might land somewhere in a healthy range, but I'm still always going to lean probably towards minimizing myself. But I mm. need to take those steps in that right direction. So, yeah, like doing something, like developing myself, sharing an opinion or a thought, asserting myself with like dinner, like I want this. Mm. Those are all ways to show up in a very gut-centered way. Yeah. 
And I guarantee if you are a nine, if you start practicing those things, I guarantee you, dear listener, <laughs> that your that core message that your presence matters will slowly over time, be patient with yourself. Mm-hmm. It will slowly start to feel more true. Yeah, I agree. So finally, there are three things that we recommend for every type. We talk about some breath prayers. So as you breathe in deeply, you then breathe out the message that I am important, I am valuable, I am worthy, and I am seen. Are there any words that you would add, Beth? Gosh, those are great. You could just even add my presence matters. Yeah. My opinion matters. But yeah, I love that. And I think for each person, what is the vocabulary that really lands well on your heart that Mm. feels true what is it that you long for people to say or do and let you be that voice so i but i really liked what you just shared thanks yeah that's good so then the affirmation sounds something like this and again kind of like beth was just saying feel free to tailor this to your own individual self because we're all unique and different and that means all you nines are also different from each other (laughs) same but different and so the affirmation for the type nines would be something like this My thoughts, my dreams, my desires, and myself matter apart from sometimes when others overlook me or when I overlook myself by withdrawing. Even though those things are going to happen, even though there are going to be people who are going to overlook you, even though there are going to be times when you overlook yourself, that does not change the truth that your thoughts, your dreams, your desires, and yourself matter. Because if they didn't matter, you wouldn't have any of those things, right? And so they must be important. They're there for a reason. And then finally, the final practice is this practice of remembering. And so I'm going to paint a little picture for you of a tree. So imagine this oak tree, right? This big, strong tree. Think of it as split into three parts. You have the roots and the trunk. That's like the base, the foundation of the tree that holds everything else. And that stays in the ground, right? And then you have the branches. These are what grow from the tree. And then you have fruit that hangs off of the branches. If you think of the trunk and the roots as your core logging, that is that your presence matters. When you have this tree that is built off of that beautiful, truthful message, it then gives birth to your virtue, which are the branches. And that's exertion or right action or pushing yourself forward to do the things that are important to to pursue the priorities. And the only way that you can really do that and continually do that is by having a firm foundation, that trunk of the tree. If the tree falls, the branches fall. So believe in the core longing is the trunk. The branches then are the exertion, the right action. Also, notice that if you're a tree in a forest with a bunch of other trees, when you grow branches, you're going to start touching the trees next to you, interlocking with the other branches as well. And that's actually a beautiful part of your action, of your exertion, is that you start to affect other people's lives and you start to bolster them as well and encourage them. What comes from those branches then is the third part, which is the fruit. As the nine begins to show up, applies themselves as their authentic self with their own dreams, desires, convictions, and beliefs, this fruit of autonomy develops, which is that they get to be their own unique, individual, distinct, valuable person. And that is a beautiful fruit because we are all made so individually unique and different. And what's ironic is that the nines of all people know that, (laughs) right? The nines look around and see everyone around and say, yeah, everyone's so different. Everyone's so valuable and so worthy. And it's just the hardest to turn that inward. But yes, that's where, yeah, this trunk of your presence matters, grows these branches of exertion, which then develops and grows this beautiful fruit of autonomy. That's amazing. Yeah. I think there are just so many analogies in nature that apply to humanity. It's the coolest thing. So I'm just curious for you, Beth, as we kind of wrap up here, 
are there any kind of like final words that you'd like to say or even just encouragement of of maybe why it matters to show up or whatever you want to share yeah i mean like you know when we're talking about my childhood and isolating myself and basically teaching training myself that i don't matter and interpreting all the circumstances in that lens and shutting down and then when i got married just focusing solely on jeff and the kids which again on one side is beautiful but then it goes way too far where i don't show up for myself or them truly and bring the best of who i am and then i just do that for gosh i guess it was like two decades and then when god i called the anger moment when i realized oh, I'm angry at myself for overlooking myself. What's so important for the nines is to recognize that when you don't show up, you're not awake, it is impacting other people's lives because Mm. there's so much that that you nines have to offer, Mm. more than you ever thought possible. And had I not had that anger moment, that wake-up call, the passion flowing in and through me and allowing it just to name it and say, I don't want to live like this anymore, then we wouldn't have started your Enneagram coach. We wouldn't Mm -hmm. have been able to touch and reach and bless many lives around the world. And I just feel like that's such an honor and a privilege that I have that I get to do that. I love what I do. And it saddens me that God, he's sovereign. He had this all worked out, but I was on a path that that would never happen. Mm -hmm. God woke me up and he put me on this path and he keeps me awake, but I have to fervently listen and, and stay awake and ask for his help and allow the Holy Spirit to enable me mm. because I can see that it matters, that people mm. do want to hear my perspective and what I have to say, not because like I have it way more than anyone else, but for some reason, God has me in this little place, this sliver to offer some goodness and hope. And so I can either choose to hide and isolate because I believe those false messages that I grew up with, or I can choose to believe the truth. And again, listening to the heartbeat of the Good Shepherd and then being filled up and then taking off like a good sheep would and doing my thing. And so I just feel like it's such an honor and a privilege that as a type nine, I get to do what I'm naturally good at and to bless people because man, it is so fun. It is so fun. And so I just want the nines to know you have so much to offer yes. in who you already are. And I just hope and I pray that you are waking up, that yeah. you see your value and your worth. Don't believe the head trash, the lies, the imposter syndrome, the limiting beliefs. Take that head trash and throw it away and <laughs> just bring in the truth because it really does matter for yourself mm-hmm. and for those around you. Yeah. Trust that inner voice. Trust that gut. Yes. It's beautiful. Beth, thank you so very much for being on this podcast. Oh, it's my honor. Thank you for asking me. Yeah, of course. No one I'd rather have represent type nines. (laughs) Thanks. I just love talking with people who have clearly done the work in their Enneagram types. You know? Like she explains and articulates type nines in a way that I think is so, so helpful. Yep, she gets it. <laughs> yes, exactly. Of all people, right? She gets it. Yeah. So if you would, go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
give us a rating tell us what you think give us constructive criticism we want to hear it we love hearing what you guys think and if you're enjoying it what you want to see from this podcast let us know and finally if you're wondering about the song playing in the background that is my self-composed produced and recorded song nine from my album of enneagram songs titled ennea songs check it out while each song is in a different key marking their difference from each other i wrote nine in the key that is shared by one of the other enneagram types my goal with this was to show in a very subtle way how the nine merges with others when they fall asleep to themselves the song doesn't stay in that key however it modulates or changes key for the final chorus to exemplify that the healthy nine is showing up as themselves and sharing their beauty with the world so Please give the song a listen and enjoy. As always, thanks for listening today, friends. And always remember, we need a tool like the Enneagram to grow in self-awareness because what you don't own, owns you. Be well, friends. sometimes I want to scream. Oh, is anybody listening?